Please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. If you have the Pew Bibles, that begins on page 881. <clears throat> Luke 22, verses 1 through 30. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to, to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I, may prepare, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes at his, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> father, thank you for your word. And may we have eyes to see and ears to hear what you are speaking to your church. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this blessed picture here of the Lord's Supper that we are about to partake of. 
God, may we have our hearts stirred and may we see clearly what you have done for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us uh, for the last several months, uh, you know we've been in Luke's gospel. We've actually, uh, somewhere it's going to be around in the 70 weeks mark of, of going through Luke's gospel, going way back to uh, a couple falls ago. And um, it's been quite a journey. And we've gone through a lot of, lot of text. Uh, we've gone through some smaller chunks at times. We've gone through some bigger chunks at times. And these last six weeks... Uh, we are going to, until uh, the end of May, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. We're going to be finishing the last three chapters. Uh, and this is some familiar territory for most of us. If you've been around the church, if you've been around Good Friday services and Easter Sunday services, uh, whether it's in Luke's gospel or in the other gospels, no doubt you've heard many of these things preached on and, and read. Uh, so this is familiar territory in a lot of ways. So we will be Again, we'll be covering some bigger chunks, um, but one thing I wanted to point out for us as we, as we get into these next six weeks is that, or especially the next three or four weeks, um, not as much in chapter 24, but one of the big themes in chapter 22 and 23 is conflict. Uh, you read, especially I think if you read in John's gospel, if you, just, if you get a chance to ever sit down and just read through John's gospel in one sitting, um, you'll be amazed at just how much conflict there is between Jesus and the religious leaders. And, and John's gospel is really full of that. And, and Luke, there's plenty of it as well. Uh, it's been something that we've talked about a lot. Jesus kind of going toe-to-toe uh, with the religious leaders especially. There's also been some conflict between him and his disciples, right, when they're not understanding things. But all of that, all of that conflict throughout his teaching and his ministry is ratcheting up right here in these two of these last three chapters, as we see his betrayal, we see his arrest, and we see his crucifixion. There's going to be a ton of conflict going on. And the way I'm going to approach this this morning, uh, just for this text, I'm, I'm mostly going to be summarizing verses 1 to 13. Uh, James did this a couple of weeks ago, where he kind of just talked a little bit about the beginning of the, the passage, and then kind of dove in a little bit more specifically focused. So I'm going to be summarizing verses 1 to 13, and then really going to be focusing in on the Lord's Supper and the discussion about greatness in verses 14 to 30. So just kind of looking at what's going on here in this beginning section, uh, the betrayal of Jesus, it actually happens in two different stages. The first stage we see here as Judas conspires with the religious leaders, and then we see Satan entering into Judas in verse 3. So we have this earthly, this picture of this earthly conspiring, and then of this demonic conspiring to put Jesus to death. And then next week, at, when we do the second half of chapter 22, James will be looking at how that betrayal of Jesus kind of finds its fulfillment as he is arrested. The next thing that we need to look at here is this idea of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, the Passover meal was uh, done on the 14th day of the first month in celebration of of the Exodus, and then that was followed by a week of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that started on the 15th day of the first month, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and went on for seven days. There's great significance here with the Passover. Uh, if you're familiar at all with the, the Old Testament and the story of God's people, in Exodus chapter 12, the people were, God was about to deliver them out of Egypt. They were told to kill a lamb in the evening uh, to eat. 
the, the lamb and then to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and God would pass over the household of all of those who had the blood on the doorposts. So the firstborn children of Israel, if the blood was on the doorposts, they would be passed over and not killed. But what happened to the Egyptians is that the firstborn in all the Egyptians' households were killed, even all the way up to Pharaoh's own son was killed. And that's when he finally decided to let God's people go. But that was very much a sign of judgment. So it's kind of this twofold. There's judgment and deliverance going on in this Passover theme. So the significance in Jesus' day is that there is this great anticipation of liberation from Rome, liberation from the Roman occupation. There would have been hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time, and it would have been a highly charged atmosphere. And everything that's going on here in this passage, there's there's tremendous irony because the Passover, it was something that was to be celebrated throughout all generations as a reminder of the Lord's deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. And here they are, these, these Jews, they're seeking deliverance from Roman occupation And here is the Lord's promised deliverer, the one that has actually come to deliver them, not from Rome, but to deliver them from sin and death. He's been with them. He's been teaching in the temple, and they want to put him to death. The very one who came to set them free. So verses 7 to 13 here is the preparation of the Passover. As you read through this, this, some of this language might sound familiar. We actually just saw something very similar in chapter 19 with the triumphal entry when Jesus sent his disciples into the city and told them to go find the cult. And I think what Luke Luke is emphasizing here is that Jesus is in control of all these events, right? He knows everything that's going to unfold and he knows what's going to happen. And there's actually something that some commentators pointed out that that was fascinating here that I would not have picked up on. But they talked about how when he sends Peter and John alone into the city to, to, to prepare this meal and to find this place, it was so that Judas, who was already planning to betray him, didn't know where this meal was going to take place. All right? Judas had no idea. And if you look back at verse 6, he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So what's going on here is that they wanted to find a place, right, there were, where there weren't going to be a whole bunch of people, this place that they could come and they could arrest him. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about our experience in China. We lived in China for almost 10 years and we actually celebrated nine straight Chinese New Year's in China. So even when we came back on furlough, even when we traveled to Thailand for our our mid-year vacations, we always happened to be in China for that two week period of the Chinese New Year. And so we, it was just, it was total insanity. Uh, We lived in We first lived in a city of about 20 million people, and then we lived in a city of almost 10 million people. And in preparation for the new year, like, it's just total madhouse. Like, there's people everywhere. People are buying food. Um, And then, like, the first night of the celebration, it's total ghost town because everyone is in their homes. Everyone's with their families. Like, there's no one out. All the stores are shut down uh, for two weeks, and they're all watching this, like, TV show that everyone watches at the same time. And it's just, it's crazy. It's like nothing like you can even imagine or you've ever experienced in America. And then the fireworks are just the craziest thing ever. Um, But the point is, I was thinking about this, like, you know where everyone is going to be at that time, right? Like, there's no one out. There's no crowds out. Everyone's in their home with their family. If you need to go find somebody, you can go find them because you know they're going to be there with their family. And this plot here to, to trap Jesus 
is, is like that. They're, they're, they're going to, they know where they're going to be, right? And if Jesus didn't set this up, if Jesus didn't plan to have this meal with his disciples in this secret place, they would have certainly been able to found, find him because the question that they would have asked Judas as he goes to them that morning is, where are you guys going to be tonight eating the Passover, right? But Jesus, Judas isn't let in on it. Judas is kept in the dark so that Jesus can celebrate this last meal with his disciples. And I think that's just a totally fascinating thing that of how Christ was in control of all these events. And he knew when his time came to be betrayed, to be arrested, but he had to eat this meal with his disciples first. Okay, now as we look at the institution of the Lord's Supper and this dispute among Jesus' disciples here as we get into chapter, verses 14 to 30, we're going to see a perfect picture of the reality of the cross before the crown. It's the title of the message this morning, The Cross Before the Crown. This scene here in the upper room, it is a beautiful culmination of the entirety of Jesus' teaching and ministry. If you want to go to John's Gospel, you can read the longer account from chapter 13 to 17, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, where he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and when he, where he prays the high priestly prayer. It's probably one of my favorite sections of all of Scripture, John chapter 13 to 17. Just such a beautiful picture of Jesus' love and his care for his disciples. And the thing about this, as you go read that in John, or as you read this here in Luke, there's nothing flashy about it. There's no miracles, there's no exorcisms, there's no outward displays of power and strength, but there is an inward focus on humility and entrusting in God's sovereign plan. And the crazy thing is that everything around us and the sin in us wants the exact opposite. We want the crown without the cross. We want Jesus to kick butt and take names and to deliver us from our oppressors in the same way that the first century Jews wanted relief from the Romans. But that's not the way the divine rescue plan works. It's the cross before the crown, both for Jesus and for his followers. And that is beautifully put on display here as Jesus reclines at the table with his disciples. Look with me at verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus tells them, I must suffer first. I must go to the cross, right? And then the crown. Then I will eat this meal again with you one day in the kingdom of God. And there are three elements of this meal that I want us to see here and, then, and that we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's the past and the present and the future. And this was true for Jesus and his disciples and it's just as true for us here today. The past is this looking back to the Passover. It's a reminder of Exodus. It's a reminder of what God had done by saving his people, by rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus and his disciples here at this meal, they would have actually sacrificed and eaten this lamb. We don't actually eat the lamb, right? We don't, we don't eat a, a bloody sacrifice of, of a lamb. But we still look back we look back to Israel's deliverance. We remember what God did for them. And we look back to our own deliverance from sin and death when we take the Lord's Supper. So that's the past. 
in the present. In the present, we wait for the kingdom of God and we experience the hope and the joy and the promises of the new covenant that Jesus talks about here. The new covenant was foretold in Jeremiah chapter 31. And you might ask, well, what does this mean here? How is it, how is it new? And what does that mean? Well, there are two ways. In Jeremiah 31, it says that the law of God will no longer be written on stone, but that it will be written on our hearts. The second way is that the, this covenant will no longer be a covenant that's exclusively with the nation of Israel, but it will be a covenant that is proclaimed. It will be salvation that is proclaimed and preached to all the nations. There will be no ethnic barriers. There will be no racial barriers that keep people out, that keep people away from this meal. This meal is not just for a certain type of person. This is meal is for anyone who has trusted in Christ from all tribes, tongues, peoples, and languages. And then the future. We sang it last week. We will feast in the house of Zion. This is a foretaste of what is to come. It's a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we see in Revelation chapter 19. And Tim Chester, a book called A Meal with Jesus, it goes through all the different places in Luke's gospel where Jesus eats meals with people. Uh, it's been a great help for, for James and I as we've been in Luke here. But he summarizes this really well. He says, at the heart of the Bible story, at the heart of the Bible story, at its turning point, is another meal. So he's talking about, first he's talking about the Passover. Then he says, there's another meal, the Last Supper. The Last Supper, which becomes for us the Lord's Supper, is a celebration of the story's central act, the cross of Jesus. The Last Supper was not only looking back to the Passover and forward to the Messianic banquet, it was also looking ahead to the following day, to the cross. Then he goes on, he's talking, about, um, he's talking about food and how food can be a blessing as well as a curse. He talks about, uh, we, we see in the Bible and we see in our own day, excessive dieting, eating disorders, global poverty, and unjust trade. But then he says the gospel offers a better story, which realigns eating. Food is not the source of life. We do not live by bread alone. But food is not forgotten or rendered insignificant. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But this word is embodied in a meal. The communion meal reorients life by relocating us in the story told by the word. Instead of being defined by the stories of our culture, we live as participants in God's story. And the meal points to the goal eating in the presence of God as a celebration of his generosity in creation and salvation. We anticipate this in every meal, but especially in the Lord's Supper. So there's great significance there in the Lord's Supper, what it means past, present, and future for us. Another thing I want us to look at here is verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. <clears throat> we see here the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. 
We've seen this several times already in Luke, and this really comes to a head here. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. If you have your pew Bibles, that's on page 910. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a couple of verses in Acts chapter 2 and then Acts chapter 4. So again, we're thinking about this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Jesus said in Luke 22, 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Okay, that's God's sovereignty. And he says, woe, by that, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas is responsible for betraying Jesus, okay? Look with me at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See what he's saying here? It's the same thing that Jesus is saying at the Lord's Supper. When Jesus says the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, the same word is actually used here in Acts 2, 22, when it says Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, that word definite here and the word determined in Luke are the same word. Jesus put, or God put Jesus on the cross. It was his plan. It was his plan from before the foundation of the world for our redemption. But man was still responsible, right? What does Peter say here? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. You're not off the hook, people, right? You're not off the hook. Even though this is God's plan, you are responsible for putting him to death. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 28, when the believers pray for boldness. It says, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Listen, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, Okay, humans, human actors, human responsibility, what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay, this is not an easy, I'm not just blown over this like, all you got to do is read these two verses and if you don't get it, something's wrong with you. Like, I get it, this is a hard topic, right? God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But if, we, if we're going to think about this, we have to go to the cross. That's the place we have to start when we start. Don't talk about like, well, did I pray the sinner's prayer? And was that me or was it God? Like, it's okay to ask those questions. But when we're going to talk about this issue, we have to go here. Okay? It was God's predetermined plan to kill his son on our behalf. 
and we're guilty, okay? Like, this is how it is. I, if, like, I can't explain every detail of that to you, but if you want, if you're wrestling with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, you gotta start here. You gotta start at the cross. And then all the questions about like, what part do I play and what part does God play? That'll all, that'll all come clear, okay? Like if you, if you don't get this, you can't get that other stuff. You gotta start here, okay? This is so huge. Okay, the question then for us is, do we see the gracious hand of God in our redemption while simultaneously recognizing our hand in rejection, betrayal, and denial of Jesus? We have to be able to put ourselves here at the day of Pentecost. We have to be able to put ourselves in the crowd. We have to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of Judas and these religious leaders who sought to put Jesus to death. Because we do the same thing, essentially. Let's go back to Luke 22. Look at the disciples here. Look at this transition here from verse 23 to 24. In verse 23, they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Then there's verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Listen to commentator Joel Green describe this. He says, in verse 23, they had inquired among themselves which of them would betray Jesus. Now they inquire which one of them was the greatest. Although one of the 12 will betray Jesus, Luke suggests in this ironic way that all 12 of them betray his basic kingdom message with its immediate implications for issues of status and position. He goes on. A woe had been pronounced over the betrayer because of his departure from a fundamental orientation around the values of the kingdom. So too do the other apostles now insinuate by means of their behavior that their commitments remain surprisingly unreconstructed. Jesus' message on his own self-giving presented so passionately in verses 15 to 20 seems to have fallen on deaf ears. Let that sink in for a moment. This is why we need the gospel, folks. We are those with deaf ears. We are those whose commitments remain surprisingly unreconstructed. Even after all that Jesus has done for us in giving up his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out for us. And we constantly need this reminder about true greatness because of the already and the not yet nature of our lives in this world. Throughout his teaching ministry, Jesus has been seeking to teach his disciples and the crowds about how the kingdom of God works in a contrary way to the way that this world operates. He has challenged their assumptions and he has sought to reorient their hearts and their minds toward the things of God, which is exactly what he does in verses 25 and 26. Verse 25, he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them <clears throat> and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So what he's saying here is these, these guys, they're, 
They're lording it over them. They're ruling over these people. They're, they're heavy-handed, but they think they're so great. They do all these manipulative and twisted things so that they're, they're called benefactors, so that people say, oh, like, you're our friend, when really you're not. You're just ruling over them, you're not, and you're harsh with them. You're not a real benefactor. So Jesus is saying that's how, it's, how it works. That's the way of the world. But look at verse 26. I think the key words here are right here in this first sentence. But not so with you. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? In the ways of the world, this is the person who's the greatest. It's the one who's reclining at the table, who's being served. But what does Jesus say? I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is flipping the world's view of leadership upside down. Not so with you. This is a challenge for us, I think, especially in our competitive age. For some of you sports fans out there, you will appreciate this. Um, There's a famous quote from an NFL coach, Herm Edwards. He was being interviewed after a game, and they were talking. I don't know the whole context, but he said, you play to win the game. You play to win the game. Hello, he said. You don't play just to play. He said, if that's you, then go retire. Right? Get out of here. You play to win the game. But the reality is, for Christians in this life, we don't win, right? We don't win in this life. The crown will never come on this side of eternity. Even a championship trophy for our favorite team, or maybe if we're in a softball league and we win the title, right, and we get the the trophy, it's an empty hope at the end of the day. There is no crown on this side of eternity. But what does this counter-worldly pursuit of greatness type leadership look like? First, obviously, we look to Christ, right? We look to the one who laid down his life for us, who became a curse, who became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Next, I think it's appropriate for us to talk about this. We look to the shepherds of the church, right? As we are about to particularize, this is very fitting, and I would ask you to be praying for us. But listen to what Peter writes here to the elders in the church. First Peter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Notice what he's doing here. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge like the Gentile kings and leaders, right? Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, being true benefactors, right? And listen to this. And when 
the chief shepherd, Jesus, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Not because you did such a great job here and you got all these pats on the back. Nobody's going to come and set a crown on my head, right? Or on Jesse and Chris's head. When the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. He goes on, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, including the elders, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we look to Christ for this counter-worldly pursuit of true greatness. We should look to the shepherds of the flock for this counter-worldly pursuit of true greatness. And then all Christians should live in this way. All Christians should live with this counter-worldly pursuit of true greatness. Jesus, he served and he washed his disciples' feet. Think about this. He even washed Judas's feet. He knew that he was going to betray him. He still washed his feet. And Jesus said to his disciples as he washed their feet, John 13, 15, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. That doesn't mean we get a bunch of water things up here and wash each other's feet in the service or whatever. It's not taken literally, but it means that we should serve one another in that way, just as Christ served us. Jesus wraps this whole thing up here in verses 28 to 30 by tying together present sufferings and future glory, which Peter just did in that passage very beautifully. Verses 28 to 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See what he's saying here? I have to suffer first. I have to go through trials, and you're with me in those trials. And there is a kingdom that's coming. There is a celebration. There's a meal that's coming, and you will reign with me. But you will not get the crown before the cross. This is a consistent theme that we see in the lives of those who follow Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, James chapter 1, verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Paul, in his last letter before he was about to be killed, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, through 8, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Notice the, the language, the parallels there to the Lord's Supper, right? This cup being poured out. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. My life is almost over. He says, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. That's you if you're a Christian, okay? Do you love his appearing? Are you longing for his appearing? 
Are you saying, yes, I'm going to carry my cross now, knowing that the crown is to come on that day? That's how we need to orient our lives in this world. That's how we need to look at what is true greatness. What is it? What is even greatness in this world? It's not the way the world operates. It's the way we operate as Christ's disciples in this world. Finally, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, to the church in Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, unto death, and then I will give you the crown of life. Okay, you notice a consistent theme here? We're going to suffer. We're going to die. We're not going to have everything we want in this world. But the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the unfading crown of glory is coming and is awaiting us. We will feast with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. We will reign with Christ in his kingdom. You can jot these down in Revelation. I'm not going to read them. Revelation 3, 21 and Revelation 20, verse 4. I want to close here as we transition to the Lord's Supper with a quote that Tim Chester has here to to end his chapter. He says, in a busy culture with people desperate to succeed, we practice in communion resting on the finished work of Christ. In a fragmented culture that is radically individualistic, we practice in communion belonging to one another. In a dissatisfied culture of constant striving, we practice in communion receiving this world with joy as a gift from God. In a narcissistic culture of self-fulfillment, we practice in communion joyous self-denial and service. In a proud culture of self-promotion, we practice in communion humility and generosity. All these practices are habit-forming, and so seep into the rest of our lives. I'm just going to read those things he highlighted. Resting, the things that we practice in communion. Resting in the finished work of Christ, belonging to one another, receiving this world with joy as a gift from God, joyous self-denial and service, and humility and generosity. Those are the things that we practice when we come to the Lord's Supper. As we think about this idea of the cross before the crown, there's no greater picture of it than coming to this table. As we remember our Lord's body broken, as we remember his blood poured out, and we didn't look at it in depth there, but Jesus, he talks about the cup. The cup had kind of two different significances. The, the first one was judgment, right? Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God on our behalf. But it's also the cup of blessing, the cup of salvation. So when we come and we drink from this cup, we, we recognize that we are, we are received, we are blessed by God with salvation. And it is Christ that drank that cup of God's wrath on our behalf. 
This table this morning is not just for those who are members of Livingstone Church, but is for anyone who has trusted in Christ as their Savior, anyone who has made a profession of faith and who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. If that's you, you're welcome to come and to take. And again, I'll just read here uh, the words of Christ that we looked at. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to pray for the kids, and then when we are ready, we can come down um, Take the elements. Again, there are two cups stacked together. The wafer, it's a gluten-free wafer, is in the bottom cup. So just take one stack. There's red wine in one tray, white grape juice in the other tray. And take the elements, return back to your seat, and we will all partake together. But let me pray for the kids first. Father, thank you for the little ones in our midst. We thank you for those who have not yet profess their faith in Christ, who have not yet come to the table. God, we ask that you would work in their lives. God, that you would open their eyes. God, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that they might trust Jesus as their Savior. God, help them to grow up never knowing a day apart from you. We pray for their parents, that you would strengthen them. God, that you would equip them with everything they need to lead their children well in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God, help us as a body to come alongside the parents and help serve these kids, help point them to you. We thank you for each and every one of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.